Welcome to the January 28, 2021 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today we will explore the characteristics of the tumor and immune environment as predictors of response to blinitumumab in B-cell ALL. Look at a new predictive tool for guiding decision-making for stem cell transplantation in acute myeloid leukemia and review the mechanisms of how persistent terminal complement activation can still occur even in the presence of complement inhibitors targeting C3 or C5. Our first paper is Tumor Intrinsic and Extrinsic Determinants of Response to Blinitumumab in Adults with BALL from Zhao, Aldos, Chu, and colleagues from St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee, and the City of Hope Medical Center in Duarte, California. Redirecting T-cell cytotoxicity through bispecific antibodies or chimeric antigen receptor manipulation has become a key strategy in the treatment of B-progenitor acute lymphoblastic leukemia, or BALL. Blinitumumab is a bispecific T-cell engager, or BITE, that directs CD3-positive T-cells towards CD19-positive B-cells. As with most oncologic therapies, response to blinitumumab is variable, with lack of response or relapse not uncommon. However, predictors of response and relapse to blinitumumab have not been comprehensively examined. In the current paper, the investigators retrospectively analyzed samples from 44 adults with relapsed or refractory BALL who were treated with blinitumumab at the City of Hope Medical Center between 2012 and 2018. The median age was 35 years and ranged from 18 to 75. 42 patients had greater than 5% blasts in marrow or peripheral blood, and two had minimal residual disease, or MRD. The cohort was divided into responders to blinitumumab, those who achieved complete response by morphology using standard international working group criteria, and non-responders. 23 of the 42 patients with full hematological disease achieved complete remission, although 11 later relapsed. The two patients with MRD relapsed with CD19 negative disease during blinitumumab treatment. Predictors of response to blinitumumab were studied in the 42 patients who had full hematological disease. Among genetic subtypes, they found the highest rate of response, 75%, in 16 patients who had CRLF2 rearranged Philadelphia-like ALL, suggesting that this agent could be a good therapeutic option in this high-risk population. The team next looked at somatic genetic alteration of five major leukemic pathways as other potential drivers of response, but found no differences between responders and non-responders. They did, however, discover that alteration of IKZF1, a known determinant of poor response to chemotherapy of ALL, was higher in responders than non-responders, suggesting that alteration of this gene does not predict a poor response to blinitumumab. The authors next used global and single-cell RNA-seq profiling in pretreatment samples to explore other determinants of resistance. They found that samples from responders were enriched for upregulated genes centered around the immune response, including the IL-6-JAK-STAT3 pathway. Single-cell RNA-seq was performed on pretreatment marrow samples from two responders and two non-responders. Results showed that expression of immune response genes were enriched only in the CD19-positive tumor cells, 
and were thus a tumor intrinsic signature. They also assessed the immune environment. Analysis of T-cell clusters identified by single-cell RNA-seq suggested that higher numbers of naive and central memory T-cells are associated with a superior response to blinitumumab, whereas an increase in exhausted T-cells predicts failure. Interestingly, the response to blinitumumab was associated with restricted T-cell receptor clonal expansion and increased diversity of T-cell clone types. Conversely, non-responders displayed clonal T-cell expansion, including enrichment in mucosal-associated invariant T-cells, or mate cells, which are unconventional in nate T-cells. Interestingly, mate cells have been recently linked to lung tumor growth and metastasis. In the second phase of their work, the team turned to the question of relapse. Of the 11 post-blinitumumab relapse samples in this cohort, seven were CD19 negative, and four remained CD19 positive by flow cytometry. Analysis of CD19 loss found multiple types of mutations, most commonly frame shift insertions or deletions, all unique to CD19 negative relapse. To confirm that mutations were acquired during treatment, they performed deep sequencing of CD19 exons 2 to 4, which encode the epitope recognized by blinitumumab. CD19 mutations detected by whole exome sequencing were confirmed in relapse samples, whereas no mutations were identified in pretreatment or remission tissue. These results point to selective pressure of blinitumumab in driving mutations. The researchers also looked at CD19 splicing in patients either refractory to blinitumumab or those who relapsed following treatment. Although no role was found for the skipping isoform associated with resistance to CD19 CAR-T therapy, the team found that increased expression of a CD19 isoform associated with a partial deletion of exon 2, termed X2 part, either at baseline or during therapy, was associated with treatment failure. Moreover, in patients who responded but then relapsed, X2 part was higher in post-treatment relapse samples compared to pretreatment, suggesting that this isoform was also selected for by blinitumumab. This isoform thus represents a potential new biomarker predictive of response to blinitumumab and other CD19-directed immunotherapies. In an accompanying commentary, Nicolas Boissel of the Saint-Louis Hospital in Paris recognizes the researchers for their comprehensive analysis of leukemic cells and their environment as determinants both of treatment failure and of relapse after blinitumumab therapy. He cites in particular the broad mechanistic array of drivers of resistance identified, as well as the new finding of an association between the CD19 isoform X2 part and the risk of both primary resistance and relapse. He notes that a limitation of the current study is that the majority of patients had relapsed or refractory disease, which provides information that may be not all be relevant to patients treated with blinitumumab because of MRD. Nevertheless, this work represents an important contribution to the understanding of escape strategies of BALL from CD19-targeted therapy and supports the prospective evaluation of new biomarkers, new mechanisms of resistance, and combination therapy trials to further improve outcomes. Next, we look at the paper, A Personalized Approach to Guide Allogeneic Stem Cell Transplantation in Younger Adults with Acute Myeloid Leukemia, by Lorene Fenworth and French colleagues, led by Claude Prudhomme at the University of Lille and Raphael Itzikson at the Saint-Louis Hospital in Paris. In the AML population of younger adults, 
defined as those under the age of 60, who achieve a first complete remission, or CR1, with intensive chemotherapy, the decision about it or when to proceed to HSCT remains the primary consideration for optimizing long-term outcomes. Lacking data from large randomized trials, clinical practice has relied on donor versus no-donor analyses to interrogate the benefit of HSCT. A need remains for better predictive tools to evaluate individual patient risk and to inform personalized recommendations for proceeding to transplantation. The French team sought to evaluate the utility, alone and in combination with other widely used tools, of the AML Knowledge Bank for guiding HSCT decision-making. The KB, as it's known, is a multi-stage model employing clinical, cytogenetic, molecular, and treatment variables drawn from results involving more than 1,500 patients enrolled in three German-Austrian AML study group trials, conducted between 1993 and 2004. Using the KB, it is possible to construct personalized simulations for relapse, remission, and mortality. However, its use to identify patients benefiting or being harmed by HSCT had yet to be validated. For the current analysis, the researchers applied the KB algorithm to a cohort of 650 patients previously enrolled in the Acute Leukemia French Association, or ALPHA-0702 study, a phase two drug trial of newly diagnosed AML in younger adult patients. As part of that study, pre-treatment bone marrow samples were sequenced for 41 recurrently mutated genes, as well as screened for the presence of the proto-oncogene FLT3-ITD, plus numerous recurrent gene rearrangements. Using the 100 variables that can instruct KB predictions, each patient in the alpha-0702 population was assigned a score of 0 to 100, with lower values indicating worse prognosis. When applied to the current cohort, the analysis showed that a higher KB score was associated with a lower risk of death or failure beyond CR1. The team then compared these findings with predictions of overall survival based on European LeukemiaNet, or ELN, 2017 stratification, and found that KB score had greater predictive value for survival at five years. The team then considered whether the KB algorithm could identify patients who would benefit from HSCT. Because the benefit of HSCT is often limited to patients with poorer prognosis, and because of the strong prognostic value of the KB score, the researchers assessed various cutoffs for KB score and identified a threshold value of 40 as optimal for the discrimination of HSCT benefit. Using this approach, the team was able to validate the KB across both lower and higher risk populations within the cohort finding a significant interaction between HSCT and this KB threshold. The researchers next demonstrated that integrating ELN 2017 risk classification and assessment of minimal residual disease using nucleophosmin can identify patients for whom HSCT in CR1 is detrimental. However, this is insufficient to robustly identify patients who would benefit from transplant. To conclude their analysis, the investigators sought to combine the MRD-adjusted ELN stratification with the validated KB score threshold to optimally identify patients in whom HSCT in CR1 induces a survival benefit. They sorted the cohort into HSCT candidates and chemo-only candidates, defining HSCT candidates as those with non-favorable MRD-adjusted ELN risk and a KB score less than 40. This combined stratification strongly interacted with the benefit of HSCT in both time-dependent and six-month analyses, 
with HSCT conferring a significant overall survival benefit among transplant candidates, but detrimentally impacting survival in chemo-only candidates. Taken together, these findings suggest that integrating KB predictions with ELN 2017 and MRD may represent a promising approach to optimize HSCT timing in younger adult patients with AML. In their accompanying commentary, Roni Cheval at Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York and Robert Seufer at Boston's Dana-Farber Cancer Institute note that the model established by Fenworth et al. allows refinement of the clinical decision-making process, potentially protecting those patients for whom HSCT following a first CR would be detrimental. However, they caution that the KB-based algorithm requires additional validation before being deployed for clinical use. Key among their reservations is the fact that the KB's core dataset is collected from studies conducted more than 15 years ago, at a time of different treatment standards, and that the Alpha 0702 trial on which the new approach was validated used a drug regimen no longer commonly employed. Cheval and Seufer nevertheless acknowledge that despite its limitations, the KB-based tool represents progress, and the expanded approach proposed by the current research offers a glimpse of what the future of personalized medicine may hold. To colleagues wary of computerized algorithms, they also stress the utility of objective tools to reduce the influence of personal biases and to process complex sets of variables. These benefits, the commenters say, are owed to patients when determining the life and death stakes of HSCT. Our final feature this week Complement inhibition at the level of C3 or C5, mechanistic reasons for ongoing terminal pathway activity, focuses on research by Marco Manis and colleagues, led by Christoph Schmidt at the University of Ulm in Germany, that informs on when and why C3 and C5 inhibitors will fail to completely inhibit the lytic complement pathway and provides fundamental new insights into complement biology. The complement pathway serves as an immune defense system, but when overactivated, is associated with cell damage and severe disease. Over the past decade, it has emerged as an important therapeutic target, due in large part to the success of the complement factor C5 antibody echolizumab for treatment of paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinuria, or PNH, atypical hemolytic uremic syndrome, and other disorders. Multiple anti-C5 agents are currently in clinical trials, and clinical research is also underway for agents that target factor C3, notably the Comstatin class of peptide inhibitors. Yet despite therapy directed at these targets, some patients continue to experience significant complement cascade activity, an event known as pharmacodynamic breakthrough. Its molecular basis remains poorly defined, and the current research sought to elucidate the mechanisms through which breakthrough occurs. The investigators hypothesized that the complement cascade, specifically C3 and C5 convertases, runs differently than expected under conditions when the pathways are intercepted pharmacologically. The team used echolizumab and a comstatin compound to block C5 and C3 activity, respectively in an ABO-incompatible model of whole blood that induces strong complement activity. They found that some degree of cell destruction persisted despite the blockade, confirming that inhibition of C5 and C3 does not reliably prevent lysis of healthy human erythrocytes following strong complement pathway activation. The researchers next looked at the effects of C3 absence using C3-depleted serum primed for complement activation. They confirmed that hemolysis continues to occur, 
as C5 activation is needed to form the membrane attack complex that leads to cell lysis. These findings confirmed that C5 activation is possible despite the absence of C3. The team then sought to determine how such activation occurs, focusing on factor C4 as a possible alternative activation pathway. Its cleaved product, C4b, is an established actor in the prevailing understanding of the enzymatic convertase activation of C5. The investigators postulated that C5 priming, which prepares the factor for cleavage, can be performed by deposited C4b as well as C3b. They began by testing the relative binding affinities of these two to C5, and in fact demonstrated similar affinity between the two. In their next experiments, the team performed parallel examinations of the effects of erythrocyte opsonization with either C3b or C4b on enzymatic and non-enzymatic activation of C5. The results demonstrated that surfaces deposited purely with C4b in the absence of C3 showed a similar, albeit less pronounced, behavior compared to C3b, confirming that C5 priming by C4b alone can produce enzymatic and non-enzymatic C5 activation. Finally, the investigators examined the potential for non-enzymatic conformational activation of C5 using various techniques, including fluorescent tissue staining and SPR optical sensing. The team demonstrated unequivocally that binding of C5 to densely C3b opsonized surfaces that are void of convertases can produce conformational activation of C5 and associated lytic pore formation. In summarizing their work, the authors note that first, strong classical pathway activation leads to C5 activation, despite C3 inhibition, signifying C3 bypass activation of C5, and second, that conformational activation of C5 in the absence of convertases or other enzymes cannot be inhibited by different individual C5 inhibitors, such as echolizumab. The authors observe that these findings may hold implications not only for current and future research, but also for the existing body of preclinical research, which to date has been based on disease models that assume that C3 knockout abolishes virtually all complement effector functions. In her commentary about the paper, Lupka Romenina of Sorbonne University in Paris notes that this work refines our understanding of C5 activation by identifying a C3 bypass pathway. Key among this discovery is the demonstration that on highly opsonized surfaces, the cell-killing membrane attack complex may be formed without a C5 convertase due to a conformational change in C5, which adopts a C5B-like structure. Dr. Romenina points out that with the advent of complement inhibitors capable of acting at various stages of the cascade, it is crucial to understand the mechanisms of residual terminal pathway activity and how it will be impacted by these novel drugs. She further notes that this study raises many new questions relevant to pathophysiology and clinical care, including in which conditions does this residual activity occur in vivo. She adds that the current findings may explain, at least in part, the pharmacodynamic breakthrough of complement inhibitors in PNH or other diseases where densely opsonized cells, especially erythrocytes, accumulate. Dr. Romenino concludes these new insights hold great significance for the future development and use of complement inhibitors in clinical practice. For a list of additional authors as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to www.bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening.